Hello, and welcome to Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. Resolve is a youth-led social enterprise that spotlights the climate crisis and builds climate action communities in South Asia. I am your host, Ronak Mainali, and this podcast, Rewind, is a documentation of my journey learning about the climate crisis through quick and casual conversations with experts, activists, entrepreneurs, and everyone else making a difference in this space. Welcome everyone to the third episode of the Rewind podcast. Today we have a very exciting episode lined up. With us we have Iman Chowdhury discussing climate change and its impacts on Bangladesh. Kavya, co-founder of Resolve, is also here with us today. On the last episode, Kavya and I spoke generally about climate change within South Asia. And in this episode, we want to take a specific look at Bangladesh. Uh, before we start the episode, Kavya, briefly, in very general terms, could you um, give us an introduction to Bangladesh and its relation with climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Bangladesh is one of the eight countries in South Asia, uh, having borders with India and Myanmar. Um, it is a coastal country bordering with the Bay of Bengal to the south as well. Uh, Bangladesh actually has one of the highest population densities in the world, with a population close to 165 million. Its capital and largest city is Dhaka, which itself has a recorded population of about 9 million. Bangladesh is exceptionally vulnerable to climate change. In fact, it is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world. This is due to many factors, including the country's geographic location and topography, high population density, um, built environment conditions, extreme poverty, and the country's heavy reliance on agriculture. Um, Bangladesh has actually always faced numerous natural disasters, but we see the intensity and frequency of disasters drastically increase due to climate change as well. Uh, These include floods, cyclones, flash floods, landslides, um, almost every year. The rising sea levels has also significantly exacerbated the process of salinization, uh, which, you know, is the process by which water-soluble salts accumulate in the soil. Um, Coastal drinking water supplies have been contaminated with salt as well, leaving lots of people who rely on these resources vulnerable to lots of health problems. Um, Agriculture is also the mainstay of the Bangladeshi economy, uh, and it's also badly affected and crops are damaged because of salinization. Uh, It's causing significant soil degradation. Um, as the majority of the population in Bangladesh relies on agriculture for income, this is one of the most pressing issues faced by the country today. Bangladesh is also already seeing lots of population displacement due to climate change. In fact, it has been estimated that by 2050, one in every seven people in Bangladesh will be displaced by climate change. Up to 18 million alone may have to move because of Uh, sea level rise. Uh, So this is just a quick overview of the vulnerabilities Bangladesh faces due to climate change. I'm sure we'll dive deeper into some of these factors in the episode today and explore lots more in the episodes to come. Thanks, Raunak. Thank you very much for the overview, Kavya. 
uh, you touched upon this in what you've just mentioned now, but because a lot of people are being displaced due to climate change, that has an impact on the region. And that is why at Resolve, we look at the whole South Asian region, because although some problems may be unique to Bangladesh, obviously displacement and flooding, that kind of stuff has reverberations throughout the subcontinent. Also now to our guest for today's episode, Iman Chowdhury. He is a British Bengali graduate in politics and international relations from the University of Nottingham. And he also is a founder of the nonprofit Towers Foundation. Towers Foundation aims to support British Bengalis into higher education. Iman, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Iman, tell us what makes Bangladesh particularly climate vulnerable? I know Kavya just went through this, but I'm hoping that you'll expand on this. And also, what implications has COVID-19 had in terms of climate change vulnerability in terms of Bangladesh? So, yeah, specifically for Bangladesh, I think it's the most uh, vulnerable nation to um, rising sea levels. So, firstly, uh, over 10% of its land is expected to be lost um, as sea levels are projected to rise by 50 centimetres. So this will take place uh, by 2050. Uh, this affects about 15 million people uh, living in the coastal region. Um, so the two other issues this has is, again, salinization and soil degradation. Um, so for salinization first, um, the salt water uh, intrusion means that the drinking water that many people rely on, about 33 million people to be exact, uh, become vulnerable to health problems. Uh, pregnant women are uh, especially vulnerable in this case, and uh, it can lead to many lethal uh, illnesses, such as acute res respiratory infections and uh, a whole host of skin diseases. Soil degradation is extremely detrimental to a developing nation like Bangladesh, and that's because it's a developing nation that relies so much on agriculture and with soil erosion, that means that there's large yield losses and significant price reductions as a result. And to really paint a picture of just how severe the situation is becoming as a result of climate change, um, normally Bangladesh would only experience about one cyclone every year. But in 2016 alone, there were four cyclones, Ranu, Kyan, Nada and Varda in the Bay of Bengal. So what makes Bangladesh particularly vulnerable um, I would probably break that down into about three factors. Firstly, um, as it's been mentioned, it's a Bangladesh is of low elevation, so that means the sea of Bangladesh, so that the land of Bangladesh is becoming encumbered as sea levels rise. Um, the second factor again is the extremely dense population. So, with the rising sea levels, many of the coastal residents are being forced to migrate as they have done since 1971 in our independence. This puts great pressure on already cramped cities like Dhaka. So it forces many of these migrants to live on the outskirts in slums. And this of course means really, really poor living conditions, uh, low sanitation and just generally bad living conditions. Yeah. And finally, as a developing nation, Bangladesh lacks infrastructure. So I would say that this alludes to not only general infrastructure like uh, drainage for sanitation, but also infrastructure specific to disaster readiness. So to understand this uh, better, maybe we could look at Japan. As you know, Japan is prone to earthquakes, but as a developed nation with 
far more resources at its disposal, it can create uh, disaster-proof buildings. And of course, uh, with the recent COVID pandemic, the issue of being densely populated means that that transmission of viruses such as these are so much more likely and so much easier. So both you and Kavya mentioned how rising sea level obviously affects Bangladesh. Normally when there's discourse on rising sea levels, you usually talk about the Pacific Islands or even within the region of South Asia, you talk about Maldives. So, Iman, you mentioned these issues. What is being done to tackle these issues within Bangladesh? So, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, Of course, this is a global issue. And because it threatens all of humanity, we have to collectively uh, take responsibility. In fact, right now, uh, international environmental law holds this convention of common but differentiated responsibilities. So what this means is that, again, we acknowledge that we all have this responsibility towards combating climate change. However, they have a more laxed approach towards developing countries because, of course, the burden should uh, lie more with developed countries who have the resources uh, to deal more effectively with this issue. The solution that Bangladesh really is implementing and that I'd really like to highlight is the strides it's making in climate financing. In fact, uh, the international development consulting firm Oxford Policy Management touted Bangladesh as an example to follow. Bangladesh adopted the Bangladesh Climate Change Strategy and Action Plan in 2009, and then the Climate Change Trust Fund to finance the projects that would be implemented. So the country needs about uh, $5 billion a year to both adapt to and mitigate the effects of climate change by 2030. The average net investment in this area is about $1.3 billion. So that leaves what they would call uh, a $1.7 billion adaptation gap. So by adopting the climate fiscal framework in 2014, it means that they've pretty much integrated climate finance into mainstream government budgeting. So what this means basically is that they are earmarking finances allocated towards uh, combating climate change. Um, So it can't really be siloed into a single ministry and instead it's spread out across all 20 ministries uh, and all of their relevant climate related programs. So I think Bangladesh is being praised here for taking an attitude that isn't really about just throwing more money at the issue, but focusing instead on how we can better use existing resources and improve on financing for uh, climate change adaptation. I think Bangladesh have tackled this problem really well because usually when you talk about climate change, it's sort of a a niche where you only discuss climate change within climate change. You don't relate it to the economy. You don't relate it to politics. And I think Bangladesh has taken a good first step in that, as you mentioned. What do you personally think about this approach? You're absolutely right, Ronak. Um, I think a common misconception is that climate change is a purely environmental issue. There's so many factors. It's really a social issue. It's a financial issue. Just, it really reverberates through every kind of discipline and area you can imagine. So uh, to answer your question, I personally think that there's two key benefits to this structure of financing. First, I think because you so clearly mark uh, what financing is meant and allocated for climate, combating climate change, sorry, You can compile data more easily. And so the more data you have, the easier it is to sort of analyze the data and like reflect on current practices and analyze what is working and what isn't working. And I think the second um, benefit is 
Mainstreaming climate financing like this both legitimizes and facilitates investment in the area. So I think both foreign and domestic investors will be more excited about investing towards uh, combating climate change. And I think eventually as well, this will be a really good model for other developing nations to follow. So moving on from that, you wrote your thesis on the neoliberal epoch. Could you explain what that is and how that is related to climate change? So I would define the neoliberal epoch as the current era that we live in. So neoliberalism, uh, as it's popularly understood, is sort of like Reaganomics and Thatcherism. It's this move towards more free market economics. So although I wrote my thesis, particularly in the context of human rights, like I mentioned before, and as we both agreed, you know, climate change has um, effects on all kinds of discipline. And it's uh, an issue that spans over so many different areas. So I think here it's really important to really scrutinize how human rights are affected uh, in light of climate change. So to come back to the neoliberal epoch, I think there's this sort of tension between this idea that we really champion human rights, this idea that we all have inalienable and equal rights uh, just by virtue of being human. But that kind of comes into conflict with this um, economic attitude we've taken of relying more on the free market mechanism. So there's a conflict between what they call the law of equivalence and the law of value. So when I was exploring contemporary thinkers and their stance on the issue, I find Sela Ben-Habib provides the most important solution, in my opinion. It's something she calls jurisgenerative power. It's this idea that instead of consolidating the current world order, um, so the United Nations, the World Bank, the Inter International Monetary Fund, for example, we should instead do the opposite and focus on a bottom-up approach by empowering grassroots organization Resolve is an example of such a social enterprise. The reason I think this is absolutely crucial is because through this way, I think we can um, better reflect sort of the heteronomous cultural conditions in which people live. I think it's been glossed over in the current way in which we do things. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up where right now, I think climate change is being tackled through top-down levels rather than through bottom-up approaches. And I mean, if you look at Nepal, or pretty much anywhere in South Asia, if you look at how people in the rural areas live, they live quite sustainably. And I think there is a lot you can learn from those people. I mean, I know experts who've done a lot of scientific research and who've obviously worked at a high level. They, they obviously know a lot about this topic, but I feel like there is still something you can learn from rural areas, like people who live very sustainably outside. Because I think one of the problems especially in America, is how much one person contributes to climate change. And like, I think it's CO2 production, I'm not too sure, but like an, an average American contributes 32 times more than an average person in a developing country. So I feel like instead of looking at this from a top-down perspective, where most of these institutions are often have liberal norms, Western liberal norms, I feel like there's still things you can learn from you know, developing countries. Okay, so, Iman, I want to ask this question relating to neoliberal economics. So, a lot of neoliberals argue that um, economic interdependence mitigates conflict because you have a vested interest in another country doing well economically because it obviously uh, it, it is 
beneficial to you as well. Could you relate this to climate change, maybe? So suppose you are a foreign manufacturer who has a factory in Bangladesh. Surely the climate change uh, impacts on Bangladesh will affect you as well. So you have a more vested interest in improving the conditions in Bangladesh. So I think that's a great question, but I can really see two sides from which uh, you can come from this. On the one hand, perhaps it doesn't really affect these uh, manuf- those who are trying to contract manufacturers because, well, in the instance of Bangladesh, if you look at the most affected area, it's the Sundarban region, which is in the very south. Most of the manufacturing actually happens in Dhaka, which is uh, in the center of Bangladesh. On the other hand, I think you might be onto something because I think since the onset of the COVID pandemic, lots of companies are like really reviewing their supply chains and wanting to really minimize the risk to it. So I think they're going to spread out throughout different countries, their manufacturing chains. And the more countries through which they start establishing uh, their manufacturing, I think the more they will become uh, sort of stakeholders in um, in sort of the environmental health of those nations. I think the most important factor, however, is sort of this change in civic culture. So the way we change our attitudes, because I think the more we demand for such change, the more uh, nation states and corporations will have to answer to these concerns. So going back to the topic about the bottom-up versus the top-down approaches, I want to bring Kavya into this. So Kavya, you've done a lot of work, especially in rural areas. And I'm sure you've seen like you've seen examples of how people live sustainably. Do you think there's anything here that can, you know, be appropriated by institutions and practitioners? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest things I can think of right now is the systems through which consumption is done in not necessarily rural areas, right? But quote unquote less developed areas um, in this region. So, you know, uh, consumption is mostly local. You can find uh, things that are locally grown that are the most accessible. You can find that uh, whatever is being consumed are things that are locally grown, that are accessible, that don't necessarily have gone through these extremely complex supply chains and therefore have the least uh, carbon footprint. Uh, on them. Uh, the other thing that I can think of is just the sheer uh, connection to the environment and recognition that um, there are, uh, that we're ultimately reliant and dependent on um, the resources that we're extracting in the daily. And so there's a responsibility um, for us to be then sort of feeding back to that resource, right? Ranging from uh, the way we extract energy um, or different forms of energy or, or agriculture. Um, so I think one example that I can think of is permaculture um, and permaculture agriculture practices that are now um, really mainstreamed in the sustainable community. But how we've seen examples of, you know, throughout throughout history and sort of indigenous practices in permaculture. Um, just a note on sort of bottom up and top down approaches as well. Um, 
from what I've seen, I think when we're talking about behavioral change or when we ask for certain communities to take up uh, certain products, use of products, experiences, or change the systems in which they function, bottom-up approaches are essential, right? There's no way a community or an individual can take up uh, a behavior change if that's not accessible to them in terms of are they able to understand it? Are they able to align that with their existing community and individual values? And are they able to see the value in that behavioral change? Um, so in terms of sort of anything we want to do that requires a community to change the way they currently function, bottom-up approaches are extremely essential in terms of us wanting to preserve existing indigenous practices that are sort of more environmentally healing than they are um, you know, extracting resources, then again, bottom-up approaches are extremely essential, right? Because there's a lot to learn from there um, and a lot to share, even in this region, especially. Um, but I think also good to note that, you know, <laughs> when have we seen industries um, sort of uh, group together and create bottom-up approaches to then regulate themselves to create certain uh, environmental regulations or, um, you know, restricts restrict certain production practices because it's it's causing environmental impacts in the environment. Not very often, right? Uh, the same for maybe use of energy because that that information is just not available to us as a common uh, as as just uh, uh, general citizens. So um, here, there is definitely a strong need for top down approaches. Um, when we want industries or populations at large to 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 function differently in terms of systems, so I, I don't think it can be one or the other. It definitely has to be a combination of of both when we're looking at climate change. I mean, we also look at this in my I I study conflict studies, and this we look at this. We call it hybrid, where there is an mm -hmm. interaction between bottom up and top down approaches. So you touched on that very well. Great. So I'll just ask the follow-up question then. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so Kavya, you clearly have some really valuable insight into sort of the first-hand experiences uh, of people at the back of climate change. I was wondering then, do you think that the current framework uh, for sort of voicing concerns about climate change is sufficient for those who actually experience it? So I know in the global north, uh, you know, voices are very easily heard on this topic. So we only have to look as far as the Extinction Rebellion that took place here in London uh, not too long ago. Uh, and Greta Thunberg as well has received critical acclaim. But do you feel that the voices of actual uh, people who are suffering disproportionately are being sort of championed enough? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Iman. And my answer is absolutely not. You know, that's, I think, one of the main reasons we wanted to start Resolve as well is to be able to communicate uh, the climate crisis and how it's affecting communities in, in a manner that's very accessible uh, to people that are actually facing these issues. And even, you know, even now we're just starting out, but, you know, we're producing a lot of this content in English to make it more accessible to all communities throughout South Asia. But we're also very well aware that that also alienates certain communities, right? Um, I don't think we can find any information in terms of climate change and how it's impacting communities that's updated in local indigenous languages, for example, 
uh, we can't find stories from indigenous communities in terms of how they are facing climate change or even if they understand what's happening, right? Um, I recently worked in a very rural area in Dhankuta in Nepal, um, eastern Nepal, and it was sort of this research study to understand how uh, the, the current issues that farmers are facing in the area, and it all circled back to climate change in terms of what they were communicating, including things like, oh, we're getting pests in the region that we never had seen before, or the water cycle has changed and we don't know what's going on, or, you know, my oranges are super dry this these past few seasons and I don't know what's going on. So they're definitely feeling the effects of it, but they don't know that it's climate change, right? They don't know the, the causes of it. So it's definitely not reached the people that it's impacting, or the information has not reached the people that it's impacting a lot. Um, and their voices have definitely not reached the region or decision makers in the region, you know, um, let alone the world. So yeah, I think that's that's an amazing perspective, really, and I absolutely agree with you. I think that it's a tragic irony that the very people who are suffering the most uh, at the back of climate change aren't even having their voices really heard. But like you mentioned just there, of course, um, it's not as simple as just championing their voices. Of course, we have to educate the people to understand uh, that a lot of these repercussions that they are facing are, in fact, because of climate change. So since we're talking about representing the viewpoint of the developing nations, I think that really segues nicely into this next question, which I wanted to ask. So it's a fair point that um, for much of the 20th century, um, the developing the developed nations were pretty much oblivious to the harm they were doing to the planet. But to really put into perspective and paint the picture of just how how much of a sense of injustice developing nations might feel, uh, the the Climate Vulnerability Forum, uh, which is comprised of Bangladesh, Nepal, Rwanda, Vietnam, just to name a few, all of these eleven nations uh, collectively account for less, much less than one percent of CO two emissions throughout the entire twentieth century, and that's juxtaposed by America, which has over twenty percent of the uh, total CO two emissions of the twentieth century. When you really look at it from that perspective, can you really see where they come from? Um, you know, th that's a very fair point. We really, in this region, have not contributed to a lot of the emissions and a lot of the environmental issues that we're seeing here today. But we are definitely disproportionately impacted. Um, so, you know, taking that perspective... I think it's less about who has the right to pollute and who doesn't. And now it's more about who has the responsibility to act, to respond to the climate issues that we're seeing today. Um, and that, I, I believe, definitely the global north has uh, more so than the global south. That being said, I think we also have to think a little bit about how beneficially, sorry, how beneficial some of these activities that we are carrying out, even nationally, uh, really are to industrialize, right? A uh, very recent example that I can think of is the Nijgar airport that's being built in Nepal right now, where they're wiping out extremely important forest land in Nepal um, in the name of development. And so, you know, we really have to take a step back and think about how really beneficial this will be um, for the nation or for the region. And some of these activities that are 
claiming to industrialize us that might ultimately just end up hurting us in the long term, right? This is an opportunity for developing countries to shift some of the the systems and the ways industrialization has occurred over over the history. And so, uh, you know, I, I think taking that step back is really important. Um, I think at this point, developing countries can also, you know, prosper without necessarily increasing emissions or even by focusing on decarbonization, right? Uh, This is the first time in history where there's been a lot of attention and resources now being pulled into things like uh, technology development for decarbonization or sustainable innovation. Um, We're also realizing now that waste recovery can really boost a country's economy. Um, So, you know, this is also an opportunity for developing countries to sort of uh, shift our mindsets and see how we might move to developing in a way that's more sustainable, um, where resources, technology, and opportunities to do so are more available now than it ever was. So I'm aware that in the wider debate, we've sort of forgotten about Bangladesh. So I just want to ask Iman, Iman, are there particular communities within uh, the country that are affected by climate change and are some communities more vulnerable than others? Yeah, that's a really important point and it's actually really highlighted in political theory again that it's not just about uh, seeing uh, climate change as a purely environmental uh, uh, phenomenon. There's so many social elements that are relevant uh, here as well. So take for instance uh, women are disproportionately affected um, in the 1991 a cyclone where over 190,000 people died, 90% uh, were women. Another really, really pressing issue right now is the displacement of Rohingyas. Rohingyas are seen as not a priority when it comes to handing out aid and when it comes to the government uh, being uh, prepared for disasters. So the Rohingya people are seen as a sort of outsider within uh, the Bangladeshi community uh, at the moment, in spite of sharing uh, so many similarities in our cultures. So yes, um, not just in Bangladesh, but generally speaking, there are really important uh, factors in terms of communities that are disproportionately affected by climate change as well. I think that's a great point you bring up there. Uh, This episode has been really, really thought-provoking, and I think we asked some difficult questions here. Um, Like some of the things we talked about is specifically how developing countries can develop sustainably. I feel like that could be its own episode in the future, and it probably will be. But thank you both, Iman and Kavya, for for this journey, (laughs) because I feel like I've learned a lot here today, and I hope you guys have too. Iman, once again, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really, really uh, just, I just really admire the work that Resolve is doing. And I think it's really important that, uh, you know, enterprises like these are really supported. And thank you, Kavya, too, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rewind, a podcast by Resolve. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit our website at resolve.earth. You can also follow us on social media. We are active on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at resolve underscore earth. 
That's Resolve, spelled R-I-Z-O-L-V-E, underscore Earth. You'll find all the links mentioned here on the show notes below. Thanks again, and see you next time.